Turn with me, if you will, in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. We'll continue our study in the book of Ephesians. And in verse number 17, it says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Now you can see in this passage of Scripture, it's a really a continuation in the text of the chapter itself. Verse number 1, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. So we're still in the context here in verse number 1, 2, and 3. It's a positive look at a worthy walk. In verse number 17, 18, 19, 20, and on down through the passage, it's a negative view of that same walk, and that is uh, the worthy walk that's mentioned in verse number 1, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. In the positive sense, he's telling you, uh, I should say, giving you the instruction of walking the worthy walk with lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Those are positive, instructive manners of walking a worthy walk. Many times you'll hear in a Christian testimony, I'm just not worthy. I'm just not worthy. Well, you need to get over that. You need to get past that. You need to keep a lowly, humble mindset i'm not speaking against that at all but the bible doesn't say that christ saved you so that you would remain unworthy he now wants you to become his disciple to be rooted and grounded in the faith and to have a worthy walk not an unworthy walk and so in the first couple of verses of chapter four he gives you some positive reinforcement about how you're to learn to walk as a Christian. Instead of walking in pride, you're to walk in lowliness and meekness. Instead of walking in a very reactive, very incendiary manner, you're supposed to be long-suffering. You're supposed to be forbearing. Instead of uh, walking in a warring type of a, of a manner, a factious manner, uh, you're to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And those are the very... Uh, chief uh, opposites of the Christian life and the carnal life is pride versus uh, lowliness, pride versus meekness, and so forth and so on. I think you see the point there. So we're going to move on to verse number 17 and talk about some negative aspects when it comes to walking worthy. If you're to disciple yourself, if you're to dis discipline yourself, if you're to be discipled by others, if others are to have a part in, in disciplining your life to make you a good Christian, a worthy Christian, then there is also some negatives. Some folks might have to instruct you in some things you have to stop doing. And so that's covered in verse number 17, 18, 19, 20. And you can discipline yourself. By the way, I mentioned that briefly, but you can discipline yourself. God set it up so that we have pastors, teachers, evangelists, so forth and so on to help us, to instruct us, to lead us, to discipline us, to disciple us. But he also made room for the Spirit of God to work a work in our lives that we can also uh, we can also through the study of the scripture and prayer discipline ourselves and so it's a very it's a very balanced 
method that God has given us in the Christian life. We have others to help us, and then we have the Spirit of God chiefly to, uh, and I say chiefly, the, the Spirit of God is chief among the brethren. Uh, we don't put preachers and pastors and teachers or even our fellow church members above the Holy Spirit, but He's given us the Holy Spirit chiefly to teach us, to guide us, and so that's a wonderful thing. But when we not only have those things, we have some negative things. And those pastors and teachers and evangelists and our fellow Christians can also be very helpful in disciplining, disciplining us away from our bad habits and our, uh, our, the aspects of our lives that should disappear as we grow as Christians. They may not disappear the first day or the first week or the first year that we're a Christian, maybe even the first decade, but they will begin to fade as we walk the worthy walk. And this passage of Scripture gives us several of those things to consider. This I say therefore in testifying the Lord that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. And then you can just naturally ask the question, how do Gentiles walk? And the answer is, in the vanity of their mind. That you walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind. And so the, I mentioned pride over in verse 2. You take away pride and add lowliness. And so this is reinforced here in the passage. He says, having... Uh, he says, having the understanding darkened. Well, that's going on and explaining a portion of this vanity of the mind. And really, you could say if there is any psychology uh, in the Bible, then this would definitely be part of it. Now, we're not to get involved in the uh, science and philosophy of the world that's so-called science and philosophy, but there is real science in the Bible, and there's real psychology in the Bible. There is an underlying makeup of a man's mind that causes him to do what he does, the chief of which is just sin, S-I-N, not the sin of smoking or the sin of drinking or the sin of a woman wearing pants or any such thing as that, but what we're talking about is sin, the sin nature, the nature of disobedience that is in man, and I think you can sum up the sin nature best by calling it the nature of disobedience, and that basic premise builds and grows and develops into all sorts of different things, but the underlying makeup of a man's mind is disobedience, pride, and these things are touched on very clearly here in this passage of Scripture. And if you begin to try to pick away at your life one bad habit at a time, you're going to have a very difficult time becoming a disciple of Christ. But if you go to the heart of the matter, as they say, it's ridiculous to clean up water off the floor until you uh, stop the water leak, turn off the faucet or wherever the water is coming from, then you clean up the resulting damage. Well, when you're going to try to get a hold of your life and let God do a real work in your life, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. The work begins on the inside and the work begins down at the root of the problem. And here it is, uh, the root of the problem, the vanity of the mind. If you go back and study the writings of Solomon, you'll find vanity of vanity, saith the preacher. And the, the root cause of all a man's problems, the disobedience, 
comes from the vanity of his mind, the insinuation to himself that he's worthy of everything that he wants and needs and desires. And it's just not true. If you go back and you see the life of Adam and Eve, Eve saw that the, the goodness of disobedience. She saw the wisdom of disobedience. She saw how that those things were going to benefit her. To, it was to make one wise. And that was it inflated and played off the vanity of the mind. And so he says that you walk, that a Christian should not walk as other Gentiles walk. And the chief among those uh, methods of Gentile walking is the, in the vanity of their mind. They move, they breathe, they think in the vanity of their minds. So this will benefit me, this will elevate me, this will uh, glorify me, this will enrich me, this will make me feel better. And that is the modern push in the world. It's entering quickly into the church and it's very dangerous. The, the, the ideology of me me. I'm important. Self-esteem, self-worth. And if there's one doctrine I do not agree with, it's self-esteem. I'm, I'm not talking about self-loathing. You'll have that as a matter of repentance. Repentance covers self-loathing. You can look in Job 42 and begin to study about that. But I'm not, I'm not as interested in self-loathing as I am the ideology of John the Baptist when he said, I must decrease and he must increase we've all got to live with ourselves we all have to we all have to take heed to our basic needs and different things like that and there's a measure of trusting God in that of course but we're not studying that topic at this point in time but I must decrease he must increase is the beginning of this ideology or this doctrine that's being taught here in verse 17 and 18. I must decrease, he must increase, so it goes to the heart of the vanity of their mind. It goes to the core problem that's operating in the uh, disobedience of men, the man's self-importance. So again I say if there's a doctrine I disagree with it's the doctrine of self-esteem or the teaching of self-esteem and the importance of self-esteem because I don't believe that self-esteem has a benefit and truly we all understand the responsibilities that a man has to himself. I'm not talking about those things. A man has to provide for his family. A man has to take care of his health. A man has to do all of these things to a certain extent. But what I'm trying to get across to you is, is that instead of the idea of self-esteem, I exalt Christ-esteem. And then Christ-esteem will work into all the areas of your life. If you're considering that Christ should be esteemed above all things, then you're going to naturally and normally, as a matter of course, do better for yourself and for those around you and so forth and so on. So here we're talking about not walking as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. And there's a description of the vanity of the mind. And it says having the understanding darkened. And you have to have a darkened understanding in order to think that you're the most important thing in the world. Instead of esteeming yourselves, you, could, you should be esteeming those that you could help. And of course, as a Christian, 
we understand that the greatest help is not silver and gold as Peter and John made clear in the early chapters of the book of Acts but he's, they said silver and gold have I none but such as I have I give you and so they uh, gave them the power of God the the assurance of God the doctrines of God was more important than silver and gold so how do you arrive at that kind of an understanding at that kind of a I hate to use the word philosophy because of its bad connotation but how do you come at that how do you arrive at that point of view and your understanding has to be enlightened and here it says that other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind how do the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind? What does the vanity of the mind consist of? Or, or how does it arrive at its conclusions? And it arrives at its conclusions by having the understanding darkened. And that's because they're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. So there really is a, a philosophical study going on here of what's going on in the mind of a lost man that you say well I wish all these people in the world would just do right well you're asking them to do something that's impossible for them to do the world now though they're teaching evolution they're still trying to hold on to God's morality which they'll not be able to do they'll have to chip away at that little by little uh, if we are animals having arrived at our present condition through evolution then at some point in time man will have to come to the conclusion that some of these morals are the abstract thoughts of religion and they have to get rid of them and they're doing that slowly but surely they're uh, very quickly approaching the a consciousness that would allow them to clone would allow them to euthanize they're already aborting at a greater rate than ever in the past and the reason that the past was less than it is now the reason that they were they are more ready to abort today than they were in the past is because they're moving away from a culture that was saturated with God's morals when you look at the morals of the animal kingdom compared to the kingdom of man when you look at the morals of the animal kingdom in comparison to the kingdom of heaven God's government here on earth or God's influence here on earth then you see a very stark contrast animals don't have the morals that men have so eventually the world will be a very dangerous place to live if the world has its way and influence in our society as it already has in other places around the world the darkest parts of the world where there's cannibalism and all sorts of different things like that but the main essence of the thought is that their understanding is darkened being alienated from the life of God and then this is a warning to Christians so that really what he's saying is that it's possible to have this mindset in the Christian life. If it was not possible to have some of these mindsets and be a Christian at the same time, or I should say be born again at the same time, you could be regenerated but have no discipline and have no growth. You could be alienated from the life of God because you'd still be walking in the vanity of your mind as an example of this you see the book of Corinthians and in the book of Corinthians they're clearly warned he said I can't talk to you like you're spiritual I have to talk to you like you're a babe he said you're carnal 
and you can't handle the meat of the word of God. Why is that? Because they're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. And that blindness comes from the vanity of their mind. And of course, 2 Corinthians also has a little bit to say about that. 2 Corinthians chapter number 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And verse number 3, But if our gospel be hid, is hid to them that are lost, and whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. And so what he's saying there is that lost people are in their condition because they can't see. They can't see the light. They can't see the truth. If they could see it, then a portion of those would be saved. Now, once a portion of those people are saved, that's not the end of the process, but the beginning. You're saved in full, and you're complete in Him, as it says in the book of Colossians, but there's a growth process that must begin, and if if that wasn't the case, then there'd be no reason for Ephesians chapter 4. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Now, the very, the very presence of that verse, the very existence of that verse proves that there is a, a very great necessity for Christians to realize this. If it wasn't possible for a Christian to walk unworthily, if it wasn't possible for a Christian to walk as other Gentiles walk, there'd be no need for the existence of verse 1, verse 17, verse 18, and so forth and so on. Commandments, uh, rules, regulations are given because of the presence of a possibility that you could do otherwise. And that's the great teaching that we learn in Romans chapter 3 the law was given that all the world would become guilty it wasn't given for you necessarily to follow although you should follow the rules that God gives but the rules wasn't necessarily given so that you would follow them it was to see that you needed them and that you'd realize that you are a sinner I can't possibly keep all these and as James says if you've broken one then you've broken them all so what he's saying here is uh, that you're to walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their minds. So that opens up the possibility that you could be born again. The book of Ephesians was written not to the world but to the saved. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 1 and 2 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints which are at Ephesus. Not to lost men, it's to saints. And so verse number 1 and verse number 17 of chapter 4 opens up clearly the fact that we are still fallible in our flesh, that the redemption of our body has not taken place yet. We are saved and we are predestinated to be conformed to the image of God's Son. We're not predestinated to be saved. That's a fallacy. Nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that a lost man was predestinated to be saved. But it says we... Uh, Romans chapter 8, he's predestinated us. Who is us? Believers. Ephesians chapter 1, predestinated us. Who's that? The saints. We're predestinated to be conformed to the image of God's Son. Re uh, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 8, Ephesians chapter 1. Romans chapter 8 especially talks about the adoption to wit, the redemption of our bodies. 
Romans, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1, we're predestinated. Verse number 13 and 14 make it very clear that that predestination is for saints to have the purchase possession redeemed. That purchase possession is your body. No question about that at all. And so verse 1 and verse 17 proves so many doctrines and ought to set your mind at ease about so many doctrines. Lordship salvation is ridiculous. If he's not Lord of all, he's not Lord at all. Well, who's uh, who's Paul writing to here in the, in the book of Ephesians then? He's talking to fallible people who could be walking in the vanity of their mind and born again people who could have their understanding darkened. What makes you think they could have their understanding darkened brother Mike because brother Paul is telling them not to do it and if it wasn't possible for them to do it being born again he wouldn't have written it here in the passage I labored that point just a little bit but I hope you understand it because I gave it some extra uh, emphasis there they have their understanding darkened being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them so you can be alienated from the life of God as I read you in 2nd Corinthians chapter 4 if our gospel be hid it's hid to them that are lost and whom the God of this world hath blinded their minds well you've seen the light you've been saved that you would have to be willingly blind here in Ephesians chapter 4 and the Bible talks about the willful ignorance of some men and so it's not hard for me to see here in verse 17 and 18 that a Christian could be willfully disobedient to the life that God has for them. The lost is blind because their eyes have been darkened by the God of this world and they've been deceived and their own human nature helped them to do that. The Adamic sinful nature uh, had a part in that as well. We blame things on the devil and the devil has his share of the blame but men also are willfully ignorant and we as Christians ought not to be willfully ignorant. The disobedience that dwells in the flesh is still active after being born again. That's why you're to grow. That's why you're commanded to walk worthy. So he says that having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. They're alienated from the life of God. It just doesn't mean that you, you don't presently have access. It's that you've been cut off. The Bible says, and I believe it's true for the lost and for the saved alike. He says, your sins have separated between you and your God that he will not hear you. And I believe that absolutely applies to the lost and to the saved. If you're willfully ignorant, if you're willfully disobedient, I should say, uh, looking at the page, I was looking at the word ignorance in chapter 4 and verse 5, and it sprang to my mind, but you're willfully disobedient, then you're alienating yourself from the life of God, and it's a great life. When you're talking about the life of God, you can go and find several passages that sum up what the life of God is. For example, you find the the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, and peace, and so forth. The life of God is summed up in Second Peter chapter 1, add to your faith virtue. The life of God is a life of virtue. It's a life of faith. It's a life of brotherly kindness. It's a life of charity. And so you alienate yourself from those things willfully as a Christian and you can alienate yourself through the vanity of your own mind. Make yourself first. 
make your feelings first. And look what this says, because the blindness of their heart. A man that's blind in their heart. You remember in Second Peter chapter 1 again, he says, if you... He says, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness uh, charity. I believe he says, I might have misquoted that, but he says, uh, he that lacketh these things, if you don't have those things, the faith, the virtue, the charity, he said, if you don't have those things, you're blind and cannot see afar off. Well, that is the context of this verse. He says, you're alienated from the life of God. You're saved, but you're alienated. See, you've got faith to get saved, but you're supposed to add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, uh, brotherly kindness, and godliness, and charity. You're supposed to add those things. But because you haven't had those things, you're blind and cannot see afar off and have forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. You can go back into the life just like an unbeliever. Your life will, will mirror the world. And we're not supposed to mirror the world. We're supposed to mirror godliness and God himself. So Jesus is the light. And Jesus said to his disciples, ye are the light of the world. We're supposed to be mirroring that life. So in this case, he says, you're alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off. Second Peter chapter 1. So there's a description of these people that are blind and cannot see afar off. It says they're past feeling, verse 19, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. A man that's lost doesn't have the correct feeling. A Christian who is saved can go past feeling. In other words, you can over-emotionalize your life, especially if you're centered on the vanity of your mind, self, 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 and you can go past feeling. And once you go past feeling, there's nothing wrong with, with desiring the basic needs of life, your food, your raiment. And the Bible says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things be added unto you. You really don't have to take care. The Bible says, Be careful for nothing. And that's correct biblical doctrine. But we are, Paul says, uh, along with that, he says, you have your food and raiment, be content therewith. And a man can be content with those things. And a man that doesn't provide those things for his family, the Bible says, is worse than an infidel. So it's not a sin to look for things that go along with your life and and. Uh, enrich your life. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you overemphasize that as a Christian, you come from a condition, a lost condition of having no correct or godly feelings. And then you go into a place where you overemphasize that. You go past feeling and you go over into the realm of greediness, lasciviousness. Lasciviousness is an overindulgent in natural things. It's natural for a man to desire a woman, for a woman to desire a man, and this aids in the uh, the uh, furtherance of the race of men, and that's all we'll say about that. But there, you can go past that. 
you can go past that desire into a realm of lasciviousness. You see, you, uh, there's a natural feeling that a man has for a woman, and then there's lasciviousness and overindulgence in those things. And then the Bible says once you get there, you will work all uncleanness with greediness. Not uncleanness through greediness, but uncleanness with greediness. So you've got lasciviousness, uncleanness, and greediness. And I believe that you could look at verse number 19 as a progressive verse. In other words, lasciviousness leads to uncleanness and uncleanness to greediness. You could look at it that way and, and be very sound in your thought processes, but we'll not do that at this time. But he goes on to say, and we'll conclude this class with verse 20, but ye have not so learned Christ. Christ is not about greediness. Christ is not about uncleanness, and Christ is not about lasciviousness. Should you hear a message against lasciviousness or against uncleanness or against, un, or against greediness, and you're offended by that, and you begin to say, grace, 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 you have to put up with me, and you're, you, you don't have any grace. If that's your response to a message against uncleanness, then you didn't learn that from Christ. You didn't learn that from Christ. If you hear a message about Christian diligence and Christian discipline, and the, as Paul said, we don't make void the law, we establish the law. If you're upset or offended at a sermon that um, glorifies the goodness and the holiness that's contained in the law and uh, how those things should apply to the Christian life. You didn't learn that from Christ. You learned that from the devil and socialist plants inside the church pulpits and trying to break apart the the godly heritage and culture of the church. You didn't learn that from Christ. And then in verse 21, he says, If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in, Je in Jesus. Hopefully you learn the, uh, what you believe to be the truth from a godly source. Uh, you may be in a quote-unquote Christian religion or a Christian outfit or a Christian church that's teaching you to uh, just overemphasize self but that's not, that, that's not the teachings of Christ. You, the teachings of Christ is to emphasize Christ and to overemphasize Christ and to glorify Christ. And when you begin to hear this modern church talking about just accepting everything and being gracious and loving to everything, that's not the teachings of Christ. That's not the teachings of Christ. Christ is uh, no doubt the teachings of love is there. But what we're talking about, what we'll get into in the next class, is that uh, the teachings of love and the teachings of God has been perverted. And what is being taught as a replacement for God's grace and as a replacement for God's love, as an imposter of God's love and grace, is actually lasciviousness and greediness. And that's not the teachings of Christ, and we'll get into that in the next class class. Thank you for listening. God bless you, and uh, God bless your Bible studies. I hope you get into it more and more in the days and years coming. God bless you, and have a good night.